This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome to the old Idaho Penitentiary. Thank you for joining us for this uh, very special first live podcast. <laughs> um, so we're teaming up with Story Fort, part of Tree Fort Music Festival. As many of you might know, we were supposed to have a music festival on March, and it did not happen because of the pandemic. And we are going to have a first ever Story Fort podcast stage dedicated to podcasts. Um, with a lot of local Boise podcasts and podcasts that we're flying in, and Behind Gray Walls was going to be one of them. So instead of waiting until all the way until next September, we thought we'd try doing some live events, doing them uh, safely and (laughs) as best we could. So I want to give a little introduction to the podcast you're going to hear. Behind Gray Walls is a podcast from the old Idaho Penitentiary about Idaho history, true crime, and the stories of the inmates who lived here. Written and produced by employees of the Historical Society, Anthony and Skye. And they'll do a little, I'm sure, a little more of an introduction. We have a special guest who I'm sure they'll introduce, because <laughs> Skye cannot make it. Um, we have a few, just a couple of events to plug really quick. Story 4 is, having, uh, is hosting Scary 4 on the 31st, October 31st, at KIN. And that will be announced with tickets very soon. And then they also have a weekly Story Fort Presents podcast that kind of, you know, everything about, uh, about Tree Fort Music Festival in general is covered on that podcast. And this podcast, this night's podcast, will be rebroadcasted on there later. So uh, enjoy, and we'll do a little Q&A after if you guys have questions, and I'll bring the microphone around. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our very first live podcast of Behind Gray Walls. Thank you all for coming out here despite COVID. But it is safe. Yeah. It is safe. We're no safer very... place in prison, yeah. right? Of course. <laughs> We're all outdoors. This is great. Thank you. Of course, Sky can't make it today. She is, you know, working on her PhD down in Texas. So I got the next best thing, our... The longest timer of us all, Amber Byerly. That, that's right. I'm the, you know, sky 15 years from now, <laughs> apparently. I'm the older, less good-looking version. But uh, no, I, I thank you for letting me do this. And mostly thank you for letting me just say your guys' words and research, because I'm a smart boss, and I actually <laughs> let you guys do the research for me, so I know it's good. Yeah. What do you do here, Amber? What's your job? 
what do I do here? Many, many <laughs> things, right? Um, no, I'm the historic sites administrator. So, uh, you know, administer this site along with uh, our other sites, which are, of course, in Pierce, uh, Franklin, and Hanson, Idaho. So yeah. we, we do many things here. And I think, you know, this is just one great program of many. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, letting us do the podcast. Uh, without Amber's approval, we wouldn't be here. So, yeah, this is wonderful. Well, why don't we uh, get started with some some true crime stories? Of course, we were supposed to be at Tree Fort. We wanted to talk about musicians, artists, authors, poets, all these different things. Maybe we'll include some ale fort into this as well tonight. So let's start with our sources. You know, I would have oh, yeah. liked to have known that earlier. I could have brought my ale for the ale fort. No, <laughs> it's that's, not too late. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this one. I, you know, learned about Nancy Francis Christopher, you know, m- many years ago we were doing uh, escapes. And of course, we'll get into some of these stories. But I think uh, if ever there's one that, that people can connect with and, you know, a bit of a poet herself or had a way with words. Oh, so, absolutely. you know, without further ado, I'll get into to Nancy's story yeah, here. So, Nancy. yeah, Nancy, uh, Francis Christopher, which I should say she actually preferred to go by Francis. I did not know that. Um, again, you know, I let you guys do the research here. Uh, she's born in Cameron, Texas on July 3rd, 1932 to Claude and Jetty. Uh, her parents divorced uh, and her father gained custody of Francis, but she ran away. Might be a uh, foreshadowing, uh, and returned to her mother's home uh, enough times that her father finally said he, he, he finally gave up and let her stay. She lived with her mother and stepfather and got along with them well at 15. Uh, however, she was arrested for vagrancy in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So from Texas, makes her way to, to Oklahoma at 15. Um, that was her first brush with the law. And then a year later, at 16, she got a job, moved out of the house. She married her first husband. Again, she's 16 years old. Um, this would have been about 1950. His name was James William Nichols. And then two years later, uh, when she was 18 years old, they did eventually have a son together, uh, but they were divorced within a year of that. So a lot of life early on there for Nancy. She did claim that that James was an alcoholic. That was the reason for the divorce, which um, obviously in in those days, they, you know, those were things that they cited a lot more uh, in the records. A month later, she married Arthur Henry Zanders. She had another son. So we've got two sons here. And I I bring that up because it it goes along with when we're doing this research, sometimes it's really hard to determine years. And you're going to hear a little bit about, you know, why that's maybe confusing. Mm Because the second son probably comes sometime in between 1951 and 1954. Okay. So I'm not good at math, but but it's going to come to to pass here, here a little bit later. So she she divorces uh, Arthur Henry Zanders in 1954. Uh, She explained that it was due to him committing bigamy. So, you know, I don't know how she proved that, if he had another marriage or whatnot. Obviously, we had some here that were in for bigamy as well. Uh, In May 1955, she married uh, J.D. Christopher, hence how she had her last name at the time. Uh, By the time she did arrive at the Idaho State Penitentiary, this would be three years after that, so 1958, she was separated from from J.D. She said this was due to her 10th grade education and his lack of education as well. Um, Later in the questionnaire, I I find this really interesting. I think it's probably one of the more telling things about Frances. Her father explained that, you know, she had this kind of life of crime uh, because she seems to want to do something to keep on the move and is never satisfied unless she is doing so. 
I and feel I, the same way. <laughs> right. Well, and, and think about the time that, that Nancy is this type of person. Mm. You know, the 1950s, a woman that's wanting to be on the go and independent right. and just moving that was not common and, of course, culturally and societally not really accepted. Mm. So, you know, she's already off on, on a bad path uh, as far as by those standards, right. by that, the, yeah. the standards of the time. The, like housewife. That she's expected to be like, right? She's a little tumbleweed, yeah. right? You know, that's what we we find with a lot of these women mm-hmm. is they're not meeting the cultural norms of the time. And had they been in a different time, would the crime be necessary? That's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, a question I, I I often ask. Obviously, you know, she she forges a path, committing crimes ranging from the vagrancy in Texas, California, Oregon. Uh, to assault, she swindled checks and, and forgery in Nevada, California, and Texas. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing. You know, the reports say that, that Nancy was with her own 14-month-old child, but we've really only found evidence that there were two sons that she had. So this is 1958, and so she shouldn't have a 14-month-old child. And and again, I think this is where as historians, you know, you're, you're making some inferences and, you know, yeah. maybe the child was earlier, maybe something was lo- or older, maybe something was lost in communication but so she's with a child um the 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 report said it was her own child and then she has her friends from texas marianne gardner who we'll hear more a bit more about as well uh billy dingus and then richard kyer and they come up with this heist they're in las vegas and they're they're doing some drinking doing some gambling over several days it's it's vegas (laughs) i mean even if it's the 50s this is probably a heyday of vegas actually you know yeah fremont street all that business they they come up with this idea. They steal this billfold from a woman from Boise who's vacationing there on the strip. Uh, they gamble away all the cash that they stole, and Nancy decides she's going to use her ID to forge checks. So, again, goes along with this, like, she happens to get this billfold from a woman in Boise, mm-hmm. and that kind of gets the next step of this, like, she's going to go do something. <laughs> um, so, again, what happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> she crosses the border into Idaho, and, and with these other folks, uh, they continue forging. Uh, they defrauded stores in Nampa, Caldwell, Payette, Ontario, Nyssa. But the spree finally comes to an end, November 15, 1958, when uh, Frances is busted after cashing a $25 check she signed with the name Mrs. K.E. Farley at a store in Emmett. So they really made their way across southern Idaho here. The clerk thought uh, Nancy and Mary seemed suspicious after they flashed the woman's Boise ID and uh, decided after cashing the check to to follow them out the store. So this clerk's on to them. I right. wonder if she had a thick, like, Texas accent. I, right. That, or if like, this, you know, she's, she was, you know, find out she's a bit of a larger gal. You yeah. know, she's about 5'9", 195 pounds. And uh. if this woman just, you know, she had to flash it really quick because she didn't look a thing <laughs> like this person. Um, you know, this is all, quite often why criminals get caught, right? Yes. They're not, don't, don't always do the best and brightest things. Don't think it through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he sees them get into this car. He sees it has Texas plates. Mm-hmm. And there's two men in the vehicle. Obviously, he's thinking something not, isn't right, and he alerts the police. Ada County officers spotted the vehicle heading towards Boise, again from Emmett, and he pulls them over, and they were held uh, until the Jim County police could arrive and lock them up. And and this is where, you know, again, they talk about the child being taken away mm-hmm. and uh, her child being taken away to the hospital. And the, the newspaper said you know, basically they were treating the child for malnutrition. And you have to think, if they're on this cross 
country trek with this little child, uh, you know, probably not getting milk every day, probably right. not getting all the nutrients, you know, but clearly she's got him and taking him around everywhere. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, I'm a mom. Uh, I'm, I'm a mom that doesn't adventure that much, but, you know, I was... <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no, not that way. Well, not, not that way, at least. <laughs> Uh, Nancy was in jail for a short time um, before she actually had to go to the hospital herself. So oh, her man. appendix, she, you know, she has an appendix operation. Jeez. So this is all, you know, this happens November 15th, 1958. So she gets back from the hospital. Uh, they both plead guilty. It also shows you how quickly uh, justice occurred in mm-hmm. those days because yeah. they're, they're here at the penitentiary within uh, 10 days. So they arrive November 25th, 1958. When they, uh, when she did arrive, uh, she did admit that she uh, had had cashed the checks, and she says, "I can't, I cannot remember the particulars of these checks, but they totaled about one hundred and seventeen dollars. I was the only one who wrote all the checks and cashed them. The others were just along with me. We were all sober." I, I don't think I believed that last part all yeah. the time. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Um, and, and I think they got a little more trouble if they admitted <laughs> they were, were drinking when they did these yeah. things. So, so she comes. It's November 25th, 1958. And there, that brings the total um, in the women's ward to 11. And, of course, we know it's, it's pretty crammed in there. Yeah. The 11 is, is, a, is a tight squeeze. Yeah, there are seven cells in there and with bunk beds. So there are a lot of double cells in there. Those are tiny cramped cells. If you haven't seen it, check it out before you go tonight. Yeah. Right. So this is where we first learn, you know, all those particulars about uh, Francis. Uh, again, you'll hear me say Francis and Nancy because we kind of have the formal names. So um, she's 26 years old. She's from Cameron, Texas. She's got blue eyes, blonde hair. Again, a bigger, bigger gal. Mm-hmm. Um, she's 5'9", 195 pounds. She's vaccinated. She doesn't have any tattoos. Says she drank occasionally, smoked. Didn't gamble or do drugs. Okay, wasn't she in Vegas? Wait a minute. Let's (laughs) go back a little bit. Uh, A member of the Baptist Church. I don't think they approve of that. Not quite sure. Uh, We'll do the research on that later. Uh, She did say she quit school in the 10th grade, and her occupation was listed as waitress and housewife. Mm. Not forger. She didn't list that as, no. She didn't list that. But I always love these things because, you know, it says, like, teeth, fair. You know, what did that, I mean, I don't know. What did that mean back then, you know? She's got moles. She's got small scars across her nose. And then a distinguishing C-shaped scar on the palm of her left hand. So, you know, the many adventures of Francis. He was out doing something, right? Um, Well, and this is where, you know, this is where it gets interesting with those letters um, that we can see quite Mm -hmm. often in their their files. Um, Her husband, her estranged husband, obviously, she left him in Texas to to go out gallivanting with some friends. He writes a letter. Right. What? Yeah. She's 26. <laughs> she needs to do something. Yeah, maybe. So, okay. Right. <laughs> so he writes this letter. His mom, so her mother-in-law, writes a letter to the prison board uh, requesting her release because she needs to come take care of these two young children. So again, goes back to those expectation of roles. Right. And I'm sure, you know, that maybe mm-hmm. the elderly mother's like, I don't want to take care of these small kids. He's thinking that's not his job or duty to do that. But at least it looks like support Mm -hmm. for her. So, I mean, this is just, this is, you know, she was there November 25th. So almost right away they're writing these letters. In this time, she's pretty well behaved. Uh, Seems like she's a good candidate for early parole. However, December 28th, 
1958. So this is a month and three days, right? <laughs> Things would change. The oh, direction no. oh, uh, no. and trajectory would change. <sighs> Uh, now, typically, the front door of the women's ward was locked at 4 p.m., and they called it a bull lock. Uh, and the women, however, they weren't required, so they're locked in the ward, mm-hmm. but they don't have to be locked into their cells until 10.30 at night. So it's about shortly before 9 p.m. on the 28th, um, there's an alarm bell, because obviously they they had a system in which they could pull that mm-hmm. alarm. If there's an emergency, some one of the women are in trouble, anything like that. And so it alerts the turnkey guard, which is just right up here uh, in the administration building that you all came through and the guards rush over to the women's ward to hear this commotion when they entered the outer gate they come in that way that's still locked they come in there and then they notice there's tables and boxes and chairs and this short ladder that they used to get over the north wall so that's going to be the one that's closest to the foothills the front door was open and one woman was out of her cell she's the one that actually you know, oh, sounds, the sounds the alarm. Uh, seven others were locked up. So what happens is Francis and her original partner in crime, so Marianne Gardner is here as well, who's on that first voyage in in, uh, in Nevada, um, as well as Virginia Pugmire, separate crime, all that, just a friend yeah. <laughs> they met while they were all, here. All in for forgery. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're the ones that climbed over the wall at about 730 is what the what the women say. Uh, before they left, they'd overturned tables, chairs, broke several dishes. They threatened all these other women, told them not to alert the guards. Uh, they lock all the other women in their cells, uh, except for the one who it just wouldn't clasp. Yeah. So they had put wire around it to shut it. So what she had done in that time is tried to unwind it. And it took her that long to, till 9 p.m. to actually yeah. alert the guards so um so she's trying to that that woman's uh uh you know doing as best she can she gets this wire off uh they broke the lock off the front door with an iron pipe and then they had piled up all those tables and then the barrel next to the the prison wall and that's that's how they climbed over so it's some determination there to get out but you know, I, I look at that and it always it always baffles me because people say, well, how did they how did they escape from there? Because it's not quite like the wall here where mm-hmm. it bumps out a little bit more. It's a little smoother. So yeah. um, a grit and determination, I think, is the answer. So so the same day here, it's December 28th at about 11 p.m., uh, the owner of the Desert Inn on U.S. Highway 30, which, of course, is going, uh, you know, east and south. Mm-hmm. So it's about southeast. You're, you're, you're heading down into Nevada. Um, I think the turnoff there is from I-84 is like bliss where you go down uh, 30. Uh, there's a, this owner says, okay, I saw three women. They stopped at my restaurant. Um, one got out of this 1952 Chevrolet sedan and walked inside, looked around, and then hopped back in the car. But a cab driver uh, reported picking up a trio of women and dropping them off uh, in the eastern outskirts of Boise and reportedly around Mountain Home. Okay. So it's like, you know, kind of on the way there, but sort of like maybe they had split up at some point. Yeah. Maybe these are just kind of different reports. And then there was another one that said a trio of women were seen hitchhiking near Pendleton, Oregon. So we're the three heading southeast. We're, you know, West. Yeah. right. West. And and basically, Warden Clap, you know, at the time, Warden Lewis Clap, he's saying, you know, there's still a lot of mystery connected with this thing. That's his direct <laughs> quote. And and obviously, probably a little bit of both. Yeah. You know, it sounds like the, the women had separated. And so Nancy and Marianne kind of went west, make it down to California yeah. and split up. And then Virginia, she's the first one that's captured. And just a few days later, she's captured. Captured 
uh, while hitchhiking near Kimberly. So that makes sense that she was doing maybe the the Highway 30 there. So she's locked up in the the Twin Falls County Jail. She refuses to tell police, you know, no narc here, no chirping from this bird. That's right. (laughs) Um, So on January 3rd, however, so a couple days after that, January 3rd, 1959, so we're into the new year, uh, Warden Clapp, Ring, ring, gets a phone call from Mr. Al Gardner. He is the father of Marianne Gardner in El Monte, California. I'm not sure where El Monte is, but it's a long ways from Boise, Idaho. That's quite the trek. (laughs) And uh, he had arrived at her doorstep and, hey, mom and dad. And uh, he called the warden immediately. Um... Dad. (laughs) Dang. You got my back. I I thought it was safe. Uh, Clapp told Mr. Gardner, you know, he says, you know, we'll have the, you know, just tell the authorities. We'll lock her up in the local jail there. We'll collect her. And he said, no, I'll take her back myself. We'll drive all night if necessary to get there Sunday. Dad's Papa, a total bummer. Papa don't preach. <laughs> no. Man, he, uh, yeah, no, I think I think she was better off uh, with the local authorities. I, I want to know what that drive was like. Oh, my god! Right, is it complete silence? Is it yelling the whole time? Oh. I don't know. He also told Warden Clapp that Mary uh, had spilled the beans, that Nancy had uh, split off from Mary in an Oregon town called Tangent near, near Corvallis. Um, yeah, she's the narc. She's, <laughs> she's, 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 yeah, okay. she's the one. Uh, uh, Mary was loaded into the car along with her mother and grandmother. <laughs> Again, I just <laughs> love this visual. Like, are they just taking turns yelling? Like, okay, when we get to the Nevada line, yeah. Grandma, you take over. It's probably one of the only situations where she was, like, excited to return to prison. Right. And, like, be dumped <laughs> off here. <laughs> Thank God for uh, the solitude. Get me out of here. <laughs> And, of course, I love, you know, just these comments from, from Warden Clapp. He, he had said, uh, Mr. Gardner appeared to be quite a forceful man <laughs> on his ideas of right and wrong. Apparently, when his daughter appeared at their door, there was only one thing in his mind, and that was to bring her back. He said his daughter told him he, she wanted to come back but had trouble making up her mind to do it herself. Sure, <laughs> sure, Marianne. Like, I needed you to help me. I like that a prison warden is saying that about this dad. Like, right, like, like dude, <laughs> yeah, yeah. this guy's got right Whoa. and wrong, you know, yeah, on the brain. come on. <laughs> uh, it, and it sounds like, so apparently she was only at home for like an hour and a half before she came, yeah. comes back to Boise. And again, this is January 3rd, so we're only oh. a few days, you know, a, a very short trip <laughs> for her. Uh, on January 10th, so now we're a week after uh, Marianne has been recaptured, Nancy was then recaptured mm. in Austin, Texas. So she made it near Sky's wow. territory. Yeah, yeah, they're in Texas. Uh, <laughs> so and and of course, what did she? Why was she busted? Passing a bad check, um, and she was awaiting oh, trial in in Texas, and and she said, "Oh, by the way, <laughs> I escaped from the Idaho State Penitentiary," and of course they yeah. send a telegram to to Warden Clapp, and he sends down a guard, yeah. um, these traveling guards, of course that I, that we had. I don't blame her. I've heard about you know prisons in Texas. <laughs> it's going. Hmm, let's go back to Idaho, please. Let's see Texas prison. You know. Oh, by the way, I escaped from there. Yeah. I should probably go yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so she has finally returned January 31st. So she oh had a, not really a month of freedom. She only actually had a, you know, a yeah. week or two of freedom yeah. and oh. then uh, was brought back uh, here. Um, all three women were actually charged with escape because we oh. know they actually, you know, charged people with escape after mm. uh, that law was passed. Uh, Nancy's handed a two and a half year additional sentence 
sentence uh, following her forgery sentence. And so they actually, once she completes her original sentence on October 25th, 1960, she's given a new number. Mm-hmm. So now she's technically a new inmate and she be, you know, begins her second stint for escape. The, the great thing about um, Nancy Francis um, is that we, we have great records uh, in the clock, which thankfully the Idaho State Archives has, um, I believe, all of the editions, all, all the about, known yeah. editions mm-hmm. of, of the clock that we have. And the clock is a prison newspaper. And during Nancy's time, they actually create this section for, for women. Yeah. And so we hear her voice a lot, which is great because we don't always get that unique voice. She took classes while she was in the women's board for bookkeeping. She was described as a very good student, shows a definite advancement, very good attitude, cooperative, helps other girls in their studies. So whatever reason, this escaping thing, she's, you know, trying to do the straight and narrow after that. Uh, she also, you know, she takes up writing in the clock, and she wrote and served as the editor in a, in a section that, um, during her tenure, it started as Chris's Corner. So it, you see that moniker, Chris, I guess, after her last name, Christopher. Yeah. And then finally, just they called it the, the women's section. And, or I should say the women's section and then women's world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is the cooler version of Wayne's world, I think, <laughs> right? No, no Garth, no Garth there. Um, and it was usually at the end of the, the clock. Nobody gets my 90s references, I don't think. At least the live audience, hopefully, <laughs> once it's one. recorded. Yeah. Once somebody was giggling. Okay, good. Women's world. Women's <laughs> world. Party time. um but so so in this thing she she's making it as as homey as she possibly Mm -hmm. can right so she's writing book reviews movies music um she documented all of the activities which this is the priceless stuff for us as researchers because we actually know what the daily life was Mm -hmm. like and i love it they they use a lot of nicknames for each other which actually isn't helpful for us all the time because then we have to dig and be like okay who's you know little stump you yeah. know like who is this person but it, you know top, number yeah. two <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what? Yeah. betty sue nobody yeah. was named okay. elizabeth who is betty sue <laughs> but yeah you know just kind of the general root uh mood of what was going on and she also writes some poetry while she's in there yeah I love these quotes, and they're, they're, some of them are going to be a little bit longer, but they're just that good. I just want um, Francis's voice to come out as much as possible. And so in, in August 1960, she, she says, um, Among the various activities engaged by the women, one remains outstanding, the art of dressing dolls. <laughs> this is me speaking now. Um, what? <laughs> uh, apparently, that's among <laughs> everything. Dressing dolls. How old are like, these women? This yeah. is okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, back to Francis. Several of the women are occupied with this hobby, and quite often their efforts are rewarded with a beautiful creation. From the doll dressed in a fancy crocheted ball gown to the old-fashioned doll dressed in print, the parade continues with the dolls attired in the model of our foreign countries, including Norway. <laughs> that was a purposeful pause. Sweden. Germany, and the Orient, as well as the fashion of our newest state, Hawaii. Hawaii. History lesson there as yeah. well. Okay, back to Francis here. A hobby such as this is rewarding, serving to keep the mind occupied and giving one a feeling of accomplishment. Oh. Do you get the sense here that maybe, uh, you know, Chris, Francis, Nancy, uh, her audience may not always be the women or anyone else. It's, look how well I'm doing. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe the parole board or right. the warden. Look at look at this very womanly thing <laughs> yeah. that I am doing. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm getting back to the cultural norms. Yeah. Um, Tongue in cheek, of course. <laughs> uh, in September 1960, she she also had a, another great article. Um, this one being uh, a little more accurate, and I think you really hear a little bit more of who Frances actually was. And she said, she says a um, a woman inside prison walls is looked upon as being hard and cold as steel, but is she? Trying to analyze the heart of a woman in prison, locked away from home and loved ones, is like trying to see through a steel door. Because of past and present hurt, she locks her heart against further hurt. Many things make up the heart of a woman, and when they are drained away one by one, it leaves an empty spot that can never be repaired or replaced. Maybe it is a letter from her husband saying he no longer wants or needs her. Perhaps it's a letter from a child care agency saying, we are now in complete custody of your children, and you can never have hope to regain them. You are an unfit mother, etc., Maybe it's the death of a loved one that she cannot see for the last time. It is an awful thing to hear a woman cry over a baby she will never see again or hear her rip her soul apart for a love that has stripped her of everything she was living for while waiting. She has to live with the knowledge every day that if it weren't for that one mistake, she would now be caring for those loved ones. And when this realization finally comes, she finds it is already too late for she has thrown everything to the winds. Then the soul, searing sobs, come to tear her apart. The heart and soul cry out in one tormented cry. It seems to say, just give me one more little chance in life, just one more chance to prove that I can be a wife and a mother. Let me be a daughter or a sister you can be proud of. Please, please, please. Then the answer comes, no. You don't have to be told the sister is ashamed to be seen with you. The husband cannot find it in his heart to give you that chance, and the agency sees you only as a woman that has lost her right to be a mother. Then the heart begins to steal itself, and then the heartaches come. It is like a giant hammer beating upon a molten mass, and at last all that is remaining is a thing forged in a steel heart. It is no longer a thing that can produce beauty through love, but a beating mass of bitterness. Bitterness for all the circumstances that have stripped her of everything a woman holds dear to her heart. All she lives for now is the hope of a new life and the hope that she can forget those cherished things that was once all she wanted in life. And if the people that had helped cause this hurt could see her now, see the misery written in her face and know the pain in her heart, they could believe her when she says, Never again will I trade my life of a loved and cared for wife to a woman of the wild side of life. That's intense. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think when I, when I read that, certainly, obviously, um, you know, speaking a little bit to an audience there, uh, mm-hmm. but, I, but I hear a lot of her heart and soul. You know, yeah. I don't think it's a stretch to say all those things that she lists, the, the letter from the husband, no, the agency, God. that those things happened to her. Yeah, you know, these are things that were taken away from, from her. She's not speaking mm-hmm. theoretically uh, of, of what she's hearing. That, um, and that's, like, reflective to today, like... Right. These same feelings are, oh. 
Right. I mean, wow. and, and, you know, we hear uh, some of those conversations from the women just down at the correctional facility just down, down the here that just, yeah, you yeah. know, want that, that extra chance mm-hmm. uh, that they're, you know, sometimes are provided and sometimes are not. Um, but Nancy, uh, Nancy, Francis, Chris, I love <laughs> she's got many names. Uh, she's granted her final discharge on April 25th, 1961. And uh, her last editorial in the clock ended with a, a heartfelt thank you and an, and an au revoir. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she does and again, I just I love having their own voices here. So uh, she says, this being my last issue, I would like to take a little space to thank all the good people who helped me write this column every month. Without the help of everyone, I'm afraid I would have been a miserable flop at writing. So I wish to thank the clock staff for their assistance. And I wish our magazine and my successors the very best of luck. Old laughing heart, Chris. And of course, the, the editor printed this just below. It said, uh, from the clock staff, you're welcome, Chris. The pleasure of working with you has been all ours. Walk lucky. Oh. I love that. That's my yeah. new moniker. Walk, walk lucky. lucky. Yeah. You know, like just if you had a lot, a lot of hard <laughs> things happen, walk lucky. Uh, so she leaves prison April 25th, 1961. This women's section of the clock uh, kind of bounced around between several other women after that. And, uh, but it never really quite had that, that sincerity, that voice um, of, of Chris again after that. And I think we've, you know, we, we've seen that in some of that writing. Uh, she did remain out of trouble. Uh, she had a brief run in with the law in 1970, but mostly because of her prior conviction, she had a firearm and that's of course illegal. That was Wichita, Kansas. And then really after that, after 1970, all we know is that she died at a relatively young age, 62, um, on March 2nd, 1995 in Harris County, Texas. So that's, that's Nancy Christopher or Nancy Francis Christopher slash Chris. Um, that's a really revealing story. Right, yeah. right. I mean, from, you know, just kind of living life on the wild side to really having uh, having the world at her fingertips, but also just so far away, not being able right. in the time she was in to sort of live that wild side and then having yeah. all those regrets of, you know, that's yeah. a too common tale, mm-hmm. obviously, Absolutely. from from here. I, th- this might be the most shameless segue, but there are wonderful stories just like Francis's in our book, Numbered. You know, we put this great thing together, where, which Sky did the, all the preliminary research, put all these biographies together of our 216 That's women. Right, yeah. And we put this great collection of stories together and just yeah. beautifully uh, designed. So we had great designers. You know, I served as a co-editor. You did a ton of research. Everybody on staff did yeah. something with this book so much and then yeah. great local authors that contributed to the mm-hmm. articles so uh yeah. again shameless plug out of the <laughs> out of the way for for our numbered book but it does yeah. it reveals so much of these these stories that we just don't know that much about absolutely yeah, yeah. all right well great work amber i know nice. it's a it's a tough act to follow but i have a feeling you've got something good In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. The Old Idaho Penitentiary became part of the Idaho State Historical Society in 1975. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked lived and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. 
Capturing 140 storytelling program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Well, I've got a a different sort of artist here today. (laughs) Uh, I've got a fellow named Harley Lloyd Carringer. Just to go off sources today for all of our podcasts, Idaho Daily Statesman, of course, uh, Library of Congress Chronicling America, The Inmate Files for both Nancy Christopher and Harley Carringer, articles from The Clock, of course, oral histories that were taken with former guards and inmates, and you'll hear some of those tonight. And Jonas Franklin Galano Gulidge star and his diamond-studded Gretsch guitar in concert at the Idaho State Penitentiary, which we're all going to listen to here in just a moment. That's a really simple name that you just said. It is, yeah, yeah. So Harley Carringer, number 8204 and number 12325, he was born with a twin brother named Charlie on October 28, 1930 in Robbinsville, North Carolina to Will and Mary Carringer. In total, there were five Carringer children, four boys and one girl. And by 1935, the family moved to Pocatello, the gateway city. It's a hub uh, for railways here in the Northwest. So he had kind of a similar childhood to Nancy Christopher. Uh, His parents actually divorced when he was eight years old, and his mother actually filed for a divorce, charging Will with nagging. So the wife is charging the husband with nagging. And uh, she was upset because, quote, she had to labor and work to help maintain the home. And she was also upset because he was jealous of her because she, quote, was entertaining other men. Yeah, so... (laughs) It's a strange admission. Yeah. Like... Yeah, a little. She was just entertaining, though. Yeah, yeah just, just. We're entertaining. <laughs> Probably not the same way. No, I'm gonna I, guess. I don't think so. Right. Yeah, so little Charlie and little Harley and one of their older brothers stayed with dad, and then the oldest brother and the daughter, the youngest, went with mom. And it wasn't long until everything started to crumble for little uh, Harley Carringer. He started to act out. He got to fifth grade. And after that, he was sent to the industrial school in St. Anthony, which is kind of near, it's in Fremont County in eastern Idaho, kind of near the Wyoming border, Rexburg, Idaho Falls area. Uh, This industrial school was for the problem children. We didn't really have any sort of place before this. And that industrial school was open from 1903 to 1970. Couldn't find what crimes he committed, what landed in there. It was probably petty theft, just little things like that. But uh, we see the very first start of his, his art when he's 14, and he and four other boys escape from the industrial school. We're going to see a couple, uh, couple of these escapes here in just a moment. But uh, I couldn't find any details on this. And then when he came to the institution, he actually reported that he escaped from the industrial school twice while he was there. So he gets out of this school about 18, around 1948, 1949, and he finds a job working at the railways back in Pocatello. And he works as a janitor, and he works as a carpenter, a scrap sorter, just kind of really menial, low-level jobs. He gets into his first little scrap of trouble by uh, being, quote, checked at speeds up to 40 miles an hour. <laughs> and he gets fined $15. Any idea of how much $15 in 1950, how much that would be today, Amber? Uh, math. Anthony, remember, I can't do math. Any guesses? Yeah. $100. $161.27. Yeah. 
that's quite a bit for a 20 year old scrap sorter janitor right and so he failed to to pay this fine and uh i think he decided he was going to collect the money by committing a burglary in the nighttime at sands loan and jewelry company store on september 16th 1950 with two buddies of his so they got into this cafe that adjoined this jewelry store. It was called the Mint Cafe. And they had, they had scouted it out. They realized that there was attic access from the restroom in this cafe. So they go into this late at night. They bust into the cafe. That's no problem. They go into the bathroom. They climb into the attic. They get into the jewelry store. They end up walking off with, quote, 50 watches, several trays of rings, seven guns. I don't know why they had so many guns in this jewelry store. Uh, a $60 silver belt buckle, an overcoat, and a variety of other items. Not a week goes by before all these are found at Harley's house. All of the items are at his home where he's busted, and the trio is sent to the Bannock County Jail, and they sit there until October 4th, 1950, when around 1 a.m., Harley and his partner Garth Reynolds, they actually saw their way out of their cell and they lower themselves from the second tier and escape. They use strips of blankets. They didn't get very far because they had put this, these strips of blankets in the trash can of this woman. She said, this quote, housewife reported that she had found some knotted blankets in her garbage can. And that was right next door to the jail. And so she alerts the police. They immediately run upstairs, and they're on the lookout. So Garth is actually captured the next day. He's passed out in a convertible that he had stolen. With you always is Garth. See, it always comes back. <laughs> I know, Garth. Yeah. <laughs> so he had actually three stolen guns in his possession, including a pearl-handed revolver belonging to the Bannock County Sheriff. Yeah, so he's... he's Reason. <laughs> he's very amazing. He reports that he had let Harley out near Montpelier because Harley wanted to go back to Pocatello and collect a couple things. And Harley's on the lam. He's actually captured November 9th, a month later, when he's arrested in Knoxville, Tennessee. I don't That's know not how, the same direction as right, Pocatello. I know. That's the yeah. opposite way. So I think Garth... Gave him a... A little bit of a head start. A little bit of a head start, yeah. So the FBI actually collects him. He brings him back to the Bannock County Jail. They both are convicted, and he is sentenced to 14 years here at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He enters on May 2nd, 1951, so kind of a similar time, uh, as number 8204. And here's Bertillion form. When you arrived, you got all your measurements taken and all that stuff. So, of course, mail white American. He's 20 years old. He's born in North Carolina, Robbinsville. His eyes are hazel. His hair is light brown. He's 68 and a half inches tall or five, eight and a half. He's 125 pounds. So he's really thin. Uh, he's got a medium complexion, no deformities. He has two tattoos. He smoked and drank, but didn't gamble or do drugs. And he was raised Baptist. So that's trouble right there, <laughs> apparently. I mean, just get back to this. Right, yeah. yeah. They have a lot of similarities. Uh, his teeth were in good condition. He had a small scars, like, all over his arms and hands, his knees and his shins. And he also had this weird unidentified tattoo uh, on his, actually, his left hand next to the letters NY. He probably got those maybe in the industrial school. I couldn't figure out what NY could have meant. He seemed to get along well in prison. Uh, he worked at the Eagle Island, the prison farm, where they raised cattle and pigs and grew most of their food here. And uh, he actually went to school for plumbing, and he really hoped, he kept writing to the parole board, hey, look at my grades, you know, I'd love to get a job in the plumbing field. 
if you release me soon, you know, I, I could probably get something lined up. Uh, he applies, and they refuse him the first time. They say, no, nah, you got to stay there a little bit longer. He's finally granted a parole on April 15th, 1952, after ser- serving just under a year. So while he's paroled, he actually marries a woman named Nola Hammond back in Pocatello. He's 21 at this point, and she's 17, and she's from Kansas. They get married on July 18th, 1952. The honeymoon lasts through the end of that year, and then March 1953, Harley tries to double-cross a farmer. This uh, Over about a week, this farmer had lost about 26 chickens, and they weren't like laying chickens or anything like that, hands. They were these weird, strange, rare chickens that he wanted to enter into a competition. So 26 of these things that are like priceless but also kind of worthless, he's upset. <laughs> so he said, quote, I was watching the coops from the lava ledge and saw a car stop on the highway. A man emerged from the car and it went on. He walked into the coop and came out with nine chickens. At first, the man stopped, but when I started to climb down the ladder to the coop level, he ran. And the, the farmer actually picked up a 16-gauge shotgun, and he fired both rounds into the direction of Harley. But Harley kept going, so he's like, I must have missed him. Well, quote, pellets had gone through the right upper arm and nearly through the right side of Harley's body. His brother was the getaway driver. He ran to his brother's car. They went to the hospital. Harley was busted soon after, but he spent quite a bit of time at the hospital. He finally was called a parole violator, March 11, 1954, and after several months, he returned to the institution here on September 16, 1954. It's not something to balk at. Right. Chickens. Did you get that? That's good. Uh, That's I have really to explain good. most of my jokes. <laughs> Bach acts, chickens, 26. I'll let you continue, Anthony. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he he gets paroled. So he he enters the prison May 20th, 1953, and then he gets paroled March 11th, 1954. But that doesn't last long because September 16th, 1954, he gets busted again for another thing. He is busted in Delta, Colorado for burglary. And... He gets set into a cell with this ex-con from California. And weirdly, this Delta jail, it was this tiny little town, they didn't have a jailer in there full-time. So most of the the prisoners were just left there alone all day. Yeah, you can see where this is probably going. Just like the Bannock County Jail, Harley was able to saw his way out of the cell on December 13th and make a run for it. And they had actually... Somehow this woman was walking by. Her name was Mrs. Faye Michael. And they were like, hey, hey, come here, come here. They convinced her to bring them a hacksaw. And so that's how they escaped. They somehow (laughs) sweet-talked this woman to bring her this. So she actually gets busted, and she pleads insanity, and she gets sent to the state hospital. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good defense. You have to be crazy to just randomly give someone a hacksaw. Yeah. Yeah. So... The, in Pocatello, they print these two escapees mugshots, and not long after, within two days after these mugshots were printed in the in the newspaper, a resident tips off that these jailbirds were with a parolee, the known other criminal from Pocatello named Stanton Castile. They were just, you know, parading through Pocatello. So they find Castile, they contact his parole officer, and the parole officer's like, I just told Castile he could go to Preston, Idaho, where his mom has a little farm. 
Bingo. So they sent some troopers. They all rushed over there, and word somehow got tipped off because these two escapees headed south. They headed towards Nevada. Finally, they're spotted two weeks later, December 27th, in Mina, Nevada, which is uh, southeast of Reno. Yeah. Mina. Thank you. I've got a couple of Nevadians. Nevadans. Oh, Thank you. There. Yeah. Hey. Nevadans. That's here. why we do it in front of a live audience. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's actually a chase when they're spotted, and they end up in Hawthorne, where they're run off the road and arrested. They actually had three other occupants in the car, a 17-year-old boy and two girls aged 14 and 15, and all are arrested. Yeah. yeah. So they're actually uh, charged with aiding and abetting a jailbreak, which... The, the juveniles the are? The juveniles oh, okay. are. Yeah, oh. yeah. So they are in this Nevada jail just for a little while, and then they actually get sent back up to Delta, Colorado, back to this jail that they had just <laughs> escaped from. But don't worry. They welded a big plate of metal over that old hole, and they put Harley back in that same cell. And just to make sure he couldn't get out, they put a 50-pound ball and chain on his ankle. And a sign that said, do not give hacksaws. I yes. bet. I bet <laughs> yeah. that helps. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, okay, we don't need a man in this jail. They leave. <laughs> Monday, January 31st, 1955, the sheriff goes to the jail to take Harley to the, uh, the courthouse for his trial. And he's missing along with his Weird. cellmate. Weird. <laughs> so... He and his cellmate, they actually used the ball and chain, the 50-pound ball and chain. <laughs> they smashed it against that steel plate, busted it out, and then they used this heavy steel plate and mashed that against the chain against his ankle and busted that. And so he's out. They climb out. They walk out the front door. They actually steal this 47 Ford truck, and they head south. And it breaks down in Farmington, New Mexico. So where do you go? They go to a car lot. And they're like, hey, will you demonstrate this uh, 1950 convertible? And this guy, Edgar Parrott's like, oh, yeah, come on, boys. Yeah, let's get in the car. I'll, I'll drive you around. They take him hostage. They tie him up. They actually go across the border into Arizona. They drop him off there in this little town. And he tells the police. And this radio broadcast goes over. And uh, these two officers are listening to this radio broadcast. And they're like, oh, that's, that's funny. It's late at night. They see this car coming. It's a convertible. They're like, oh, let's keep... It's them. And they're going about 20 miles an hour. They flip on their lights, and Harley, surprisingly, just pulls over the side of the car. And no issues. They got their guns drawn, but there's no shootout, nothing. They get arrested. They get put back in the car. When they search the car, there were seven rifles, several pistols, some of them loaded, and knives in this car so that could have been a messy ordeal right right there. it is revealing though right that he yeah. doesn't he you know obviously He's it's a little violent, violent to yeah. you know take someone hostage but you know mm. It, it goes back to Nancy and the chase, you know, right. the thrill of what he's doing yeah. more so than, you know, trying to hurt people, you know, violently hurt people, mm -hmm. probably financially hurt a lot of people. But, yes, you know. absolutely. Kind of to recap, between 1950 and 1955, he's escaped from jail three times, <laughs> twice from the same cell, and he's making a name for himself. And once you know, Time Magazine 
gets wind of this and writes this article in their February 28th edition of the magazine. And it says, uh, quote, in Delta, Colorado, a month after he sawed a hole in his cell door and escaped from the county jail, Carringer was recaptured and put in the same cell, <laughs> used the 50-pound ball chained to his, his leg to knock off the new steel plate welded to the door, used the plate to break the heavy chains, and escaped again by the same route. So... He's making a name for himself nationally with this. Colorado is making a name for themselves in this one. Delta, yeah. Yeah, Everybody wants to get busted in Delta now. So they're actually charged with a federal crime. It was called the Dyer Act or the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act, which made it illegal to transport stolen vehicles across state lines. And so they actually get busted and sentenced to two terms of five years each to run concurrently in the federal penitentiary at Levensworth, Kansas. So he ends up spending 11 and a half years in a federal penitentiary. His wife divorces him on December 16th, 1955, listing extreme mental cruelty as her reasoning. And uh, Idaho authorities, right, three years later, they they were like kind of interested. Yeah, we want him back here to spend the rest of his time. You know, he busted his parole. But then they decide, nah, we don't want him after you're done with him. We don't want him in here. He's hopefully be good after that after 11 years there hopefully he gets out and he returns to Pocatello and he seemed to be good for about a year and a half and then the summer of 1967 he goes to uh, a bar in Lava Hot Springs and decides to rob it burglary in the nighttime once again but he's caught in the act and so he is sent to the jail. And while he's in the jail, he's actually sold with this guy named Ronald Van Loven, who is in for destruction of an airplane. That's got to be the only person who is in, in our penitentiary here for that. That's yeah. great. Okay. So in July, on July 30th, 1967, Robert was drinking and he decided, I can fly a plane. <laughs> and he jumped I have had him. similar thoughts at Aylfort. <laughs> So he actually commandeers a plane and he swoops above the town of Downey, Idaho until he crashes into the earth and he's busted and he's brought in. So he's kind of a daredevil, but this is his first time ever being in trouble. And Harley, this, I mean, this guy's been in this prison. He's been in a federal penitentiary. He's a hard criminal. Most of his life he's been in institutions. He talks little Robert into, uh, into making bail. Robert's bail is 3000 his bond is $3,500. Harley's is $25,000 in 1967. So they, they pay their, their bonds, and, you know, now they have to pay their bonds. So they go nearby to this guy. This, his name's Reed Iverson. He owns his own little market called Iverson's Market and Service Station. And, and Reed is outside. He's having a cigarette, and uh, it's, it's at night. He turns around to go back inside, and wouldn't you know, Harley and Robert jump him, they hog tie him, they tie him to his bed, they break into his safe, and they steal seven to $800. So not the thousands that they were hoping for. <laughs> they were actually pretty well known in the town for their crimes. I imagine so. Yeah, so once they found this uh, Reed, the next morning, he says, yeah, it's that Harley and that Robert guy. <laughs> and so they're busted almost immediately, and they're brought back to the jailhouse. And Harley, he actually initially pled not guilty to that lava hot strings thing. But now he's looking at, you know, holding a hostage, assault, another major robbery. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to plead guilty to burglary in the nighttime. And 
he gets convicted and sent here. Uh, surprisingly, Robert gets a year in jail and then four more years on probation because he was a first-timer. Um, so Harley enters the institution again on November 13th, 1967 with a 15-year sentence and a new number, 12325. And while he was here in the 50s, he actually helped with the construction of maximum security. So if any of you went over there, saw that, the gallows and all that stuff, he actually helped with that construction. Mm -hmm. So authorities here were like, yeah, he's, he's pretty good at plumbing. He, he knows construction. He knows how to finish cement. Let's send him out to the new joint. Let's send him out 16 miles into the desert where there are no walls or fences or anything like that. And we'll ha let, let what him. What could go wrong? Yeah, yeah. He's he's a hard worker. He'll go help build that up. And of course, what couldn't go wrong? He uh, he escapes on August seventh, nineteen sixty eight. He just walks off into the desert sometime between one ten a.m. and two fifty a.m. And so two fifty a.m. They're like Harley's gone. They start searching for him. They actually sent a helicopter up as soon as the the sun came out the next morning to search and scour the desert. No Harley. So they think, well, maybe he had a ride. Maybe he stole a car. Nobody's reported a stolen car. Well, he turns up not long after. Back in Lava Hot Springs, he decides to rob this place <laughs> called the Wagon Wheel Lounge late at night. And the marshal, his name is Jerry Hobson. He catches him in the act. Well, Harley had actually stopped in Twin Falls and stolen a car and a rifle. And so when the marshal approaches Harley, Harley pulls his rifle out, sticks it in the marshal's face. Marshal's backing up, and Harley says, turn around, and he starts marching him away. Well, somebody had actually heard it and ran out of the darkness and tackled Harley. Harley somehow finagled his way and beamed the guy in the head, but that gave the marshal enough time to turn around and tackle Harley, throw him to the ground, pull his gun away, and arrest him. So he gets brought back. And now he's being charged with an additional seven felonies. Two counts of kidnapping, two counts of assault with a deadly weapon, one count of aggravated assault and battery, and one count of resisting an officer, and then, of course, the last one, persistent violation of the law. <laughs> yeah. So in here, he's also looking at a count of escape, and then, of course, the robbery in Twin Falls, stealing a car. He's looking at possibly ten felonies he's going to deal with. He pleads innocent initially to all of them. And then finally he decides in April of 1969 to plead guilty to three of them. Uh, resisting an officer, aggravated assault and battery, and assault with a deadly weapon. And he's handed eight more years on top of the 15 that he was already looking at. So we've established he's an escape artist. That's, that's his artistic talent. He was good with creating buildings. He, could, he was good with cement and all that. Uh, the other thing that he was famous for was actually brewing a special concoction that we call squawky here in Idaho, prison wine. And he was very well known about for making all this. And, and they made prison wine out of everything. I, I've heard potato peelings, right. oranges, apples, whatever it was. And they grew all their own food, so they had access to that. We have oral histories where they guards found 50-gallon barrels in the basement of the dining hall where they had, you know, a, a fake top on top. You know, it looked like it was a giant barrel of potatoes. It's really about, you know, 20 potatoes and then 40 gallons of squawky underneath that. One of my favorite places that w actually a former inmate told me a couple of years ago, this guy was in charge of filling all the fire extinguishers and they were the old pump ones. That wasn't 
water in those things. <laughs> he was brewing squawky in those. And he would be like, excuse me, guard, I need to go in the walkway. He'd fill up his little his can, and he'd be like, oh, i got to go take this out and just start another batch. And he would just do this and, and fill everybody up with that. So we actually have some oral histories here. He was probably the fire safety officer, too. He was making right. sure there was no fires I ever. Think it kind so of it, explains yeah. what we're looking at right here. Yeah. <laughs> Not a very effective fire extinguisher. <laughs> So, we have an oral history from February 22nd, 1979 with Ron Bacon. Not that. You were Uh, ready to rock and roll. I was. Hey, I I don't know how you can rock this story anymore. I can't believe there's more to Harley. Ron Bacon, Robert Greenswick, Dick Burney, and Tommy McPhee, they're all in the institution during this this, uh, interview here. Technology. Yeah, they made a lot of yeah. squawks. They made a lot of squawks. They were here with the butcher shop. They So the butcher shop was right underneath. Yeah. Right. And then they turned the butcher shop into an electrical shop. And then the spud cellar was there all the time. Yeah, on this side. Squawky. What's that? I hear you, Pappy. Now, was squawky always tomato or was it other stuff? Oh, no, you make it out of anything. All you needed was the yeast and sugar, and you could use anything. I never ordered that. I <laughs> know you didn't. They said Harley? Was it Harley Carriage? <laughs> Harley, yeah. He's one of the masters of it. Yeah. Anybody get his recipe? I'm sure he passed it on. <laughs> now, was Pruno anything different than Squawky, or is that just a different just name? Just different name. Just jargon. Just, yeah. Or some some prisons here is Squawky. Other prisons you go to, they'll call it Pruno. It's almost have a, a, you know, a jargon for We actually have an oral history that was taken with Harley Carringer on April 9th, 1982, and he's serving life sentence essentially at the institution at this point. So I'm going to let you actually listen to him talk about it. Uh, there wasn't really too much work. Most time we spent making homemade wine, which I like that. In that days, I was classified one of the best. So he said, I was always in the hole for it. So here you're going to hear how many times. <laughs> I couldn't tell you, not as many years ago, I couldn't tell you the date I went in there. I don't have any idea. Um, can you tell me why you put here and who put you there? Who authorized it? Uh, Tally put me in there for making mine. Uh, three or four times. For making wine. He spent a lot of time in Siberia, his first four times for Squawky, and actually, that reminds me... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I do love this idea of of Captain Tally, who is this... uh, Oh, goodness. All the interesting places (laughs) that Squawky can be hidden... Um, Oh, goodness. I've got a good little bag. I've, I haven't burped it yet today. Amber, would you do the honors? Oh, absolutely. This is a, a privilege. Let's see if I, you know, we can get this uh, on. I'll let everybody here. smell it if, if you'd like after Woo! the show. Here. Or you can just take my nose for it. <laughs> Woo! This, this is only about How, 10 days. This but. is, yeah, get all that, get all that air out of there. Yeah, thank you. you. Probably heard the burp on the microphone there. <laughs> Ooh, so that I is mean, pungent. Yeah, it stings yeah. the nostrils. Like I said, you can get it from two, two percent alcohol content up to fourteen percent. So these guys were 
having a good time out here with some of this squawky. Yeah, make sure that's sealed. I don't want any of that <laughs> spilling on me. <laughs> uh, I had my first squawky here, actually. It was brewed at Table Rock. If anybody yeah. knows the old Table Rock brew pub, a little bit more filtered than this. But I'll filter. I've got a sock. I'll filter it. Don't worry. <laughs> sock, underwear. What else do they yeah. have? Their sheets, whatever sheets, they yeah. could. Yeah, yeah, whatever you got. Yeah. yeah. So despite all the trouble that Harley found himself in, he got to participate in a field day held at the penitentiary here on, on Saturday, August 19th, 1972. And some of the events included the first annual Western Field Meet. A Boise State College skydiver actually descended nearly 7,000 feet and landed near Two Yard. You know, all the prisoners are out watching this. They're having a great time. The North American Indian League, NAIL, they demonstrated all these ceremonial dances. Uh, the Table Rock JCs provided a beef barbecue, and trophies were handed out. There's a big trophy ceremony. And then the biggest thing, there was a live concert that was recorded here. And this was with a, a fella. His name was Frank Starr. His real name was Frank Gouledge, but Fra Frank Starr is way cooler. It doesn't cooler. roll off the tongue no, as well yeah. as Frank Starr. Yeah. And he was a rockabilly guy. He was born in 32 Mill Creek, Arkansas, and he was playing during the 50s, like with Elvis and you know Johnny Cash, that whole Sun Records group. Uh, and he actually opened a show in 1955 for Elvis. So, you know, he, he really wanted to be popular. He really wished to be a big name, and he never quite achieved that. But some of his albums included uh, Live at Wanda's Club, Don't Furl the Flag, and my favorite one, Dirty Songs from the Hills with a parental advisory. I don't know if I can say the track here. Frank likes eating, uh, I can't say that word on the air here, um, but <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been able to find this album anywhere, but... Uh, Here's, it didn't pass the censors, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Let me show kind of an idea of what he sounded like. And you guys will get this is a. This is Frank Star, huh? Frank Star, 1955. <laughs> Rockin' stone, and just a rockin', rollin', jumpin' crazy stone. We're rollin' stone, together, no moss, they say. Yeah, so you get that kind of Elvis rockabilly thing going on, not, right? Not quite the uh, most ingenious lyricist. Uh, <laughs> I think I've pitched a similar song before. <laughs> yeah, the, I looked at the lyrics and... Uh, rock, rock, rock rollin' and rock. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Right. So, 1972, he decides he's going to join this field day at the prison. He's kind of following in line. Live at Folsom Prison, Johnny Cash album, that's 1968. Stan Quentin's 69, and there are several others. Let's see, uh, Mac Vickery's Live at the Alabama Women's Prison in 1970, B.B. King's Live in Cook County Jail in 1971, Big Mama Thornton Jail in 1975, which was recorded at the Monroe State Prison and Oregon State Reformatory, just to name a few of those, you know, recorded live at prison albums. So, you know, Andy's Frank Starr, he's trying to capitalize on this whole thing, and he comes out here. The interesting thing about this whole album is that he actually got the prisoners to sing most of the songs. And a lot of them, I think they rehearsed seconds before they did it. So <laughs> I won't make you listen to every second, but uh, we'll start with, with his. And you'll, you'll hear the sound engineer crank up the volume. So that's, that's not me 
This is If I Had a Hand. Very late 60s, 70s, you know, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. This was followed by an old country tune called Swingin' Doors, sung by a prisoner named Everett Bond. And this is literally the most twang ever captured on (laughs) vinyl. This old smoke-filled bar is something I'm not used to. I gave up my home to see you satisfied. I've just called to let you know where I'll be living. It's not much, but I feel welcome here inside. That's coming from the heart right it there. It is. It is. I, man, I wish I could do that. Uh, that was followed by Jim Anderson, who sings, I Can't Stop Loving You. And then Ron Cox sings, uh, They'll Never Take Her Love From Me. But I'm just going to play a little bit of I Can't Stop Loving You just because I, it gets stuck in my head. I really like it. I can't stop loving you. I made up my mind. And this is followed up with Harley Carringer, and he is the only person who gets this response. Harley Carringer is going to sing Mean Mama Blues for you. How much squawky do you think that audience <laughs> is right here? So we'll play yeah. a little bit. And it's it's literally, this is my favorite track on the whole album, and you'll see why in just a moment. So let's hear that intro. Harley Carringer's going to sing Mean Mama Blues for you. <laughs> Nobody got that. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's me, all right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's a yodeler. Squawky will do that to you. Moonshine. 
every great artist. love this respite for these guys you know right music is the great escape yeah yeah Yeah. i i was gonna ask amber can you yodel uh absolutely normally in the shower um (laughs) sometimes in my office but i didn't know you guys heard that oh so (laughs) dang it so it's literally it's the best track on the whole album in my opinion and i'm actually gonna give 10 lucky people a copy of the album after the show if you're interested right for your ride back to Reno or whatever wherever you're going <laughs> um, so that's on the B side there's there's finally somebody mentions Frank Starr and thanks him so this is a fella named Bill Floyd thanking Frank Starr and he's about to sing the great speckled bird now are these all originals by Frank Starr or no, these, these, most of just these a, are just old like just bluegrass old, and okay yeah I'm not familiar with do, uh, with all of them I'm uh, Gray Speckled Bird for you now. Uh, I'd like to at this time express my deep appreciation. I'm sure that all the rest of the entertainment club combined feels the same way. For Frank taking the time to come down all the way from Spokane to give us the opportunity to make this recording. And I believe that uh, we should give him a big, a big round of applause. beautiful thought i'm thinking what a beautiful thought i I'm love thinking. it yeah, yeah you know you, you have to think oh frank and even just some of these guys get a kick out of the fact that we were listening to this you know right. what yeah 50 years yeah. later yeah so. this is all recorded right over in the rose garden so it's just a, it's amazing and this weird gem of an album the idaho history americana it's so strange and this is something and we kind of found in the depths of the collection right yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, they're in storage the, uh-huh. the museum takes care of those collections yeah. and stuff so and and this fellow right here this is captain munch he was the yard captain here he actually donated the album to the historical society so when you look at the album whoever wants a copy you'll see his name written on it captain munch it's pretty interesting so this album is not well recorded <laughs> Uh, it's it's rough. There are a couple tracks where you can hear the guitars are playing a couple steps off from each other. But it really actually changed Frank. He decided in January of 1973 to actually announce his candidacy for the U.S. Congress. And his platform, basically, he said that his interest was stimulated by the concert at the penitentiary, and he described the failures of the correctional system as a threat to the safety and well-being of the nation. He called for prisons to be staffed by well-trained, adequately paid personnel, an emphasis on psychiatry for prisoners, and a restructuring of the institution to allow a system of self-government within the prison. He didn't win. Uh, there's no Frank Starr who's in the Congress or anything, but he did help spread the word as this institution closed down in 73 and the new site opened up and, you know, just made people more aware of the changes in penology. 
he was also pretty self-aware because he actually ended the album with a classic. You'll get it in one second here. It's pretty fast. I hear that train a coming. It's rolling round bend. At night, see the sunshine. Says I don't know when. I'm stuck in Fulton prison. I keep dragging on. Those trains keep on rolling. On down to San Antonio When I was just a baby My mama told me, son Said always be a good boy Don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno Just to watch him die Ah, so good. So, you know, we've heard Harley himself We've heard other prisoners talk about Harley And hoot and holler for him Let's hear a uh, guard's perspective on Harley. <laughs> this is Bill Sanders, and he was recorded in July 3rd, 1992, and he's going to reveal a little bit about Harley, too. Oh, you were telling me about Harley Carringer, and he tried to... Okay, Harley Carringer was, a, was an old inmate that, uh, incidentally, today's uh, July the 2nd. Harley just died about six or eight weeks ago uh, out, at the, uh, out at ISCI. Uh, Harley was an alcoholic. Harley was a. I don't. I don't recall what Harley was doing time for. But uh, Harley was probably one of the best squawky makers in the world, and uh, enjoyed his squawky. Well, Harley was digging out of this place, uh, out behind the kitchen, and uh, I believe it was Joe Munch was walking along the deadline. And the tunnel caved in, and Joe Munch fell in it. <laughs> and uh, of course, that made the good lieutenant a little grouchy. And if I remember correctly, and, and I and I, I don't remember for sure, but I think Harley was in the tunnel at the time. <laughs> and uh, but the, you know, he was just kind of a real ruddy-faced, skinny little guy that that uh, you could look in his eyes and see that that Harley would. You know, he was just like, just like a mean little kid, you know. You just had to watch Harley all the time. And so finally, I think it was probably Harley's liver gave up the ghost here just a while back, yeah. and he just up and up and cacked on us. But that, uh, he was an interesting individual. But he'd been in and out of prisons for probably 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, that was his home. He was, he was institutionalized, and that's where he's at. Harley died on February 11th, 1992, while serving out basically a life sentence in prison. And that's it. Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> <laughs> the life and times of Harley. Oh, wow. Isn't that wild? All the escapes and we well, have I, a recording. I, I definitely find it interesting, almost, you know, that sort of matter-of-fact tone that, that the guard Bill Sanders had about, you know, this understanding that they had about these kind of harder cases. It's 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 slash endearing, yeah. but also, you know, just like, you know, you had to keep an eye on this character, but, you know, they also probably made him laugh quite a right, bit with just yeah. all his antics. and. Yeah, you, you know, know what you, you, you got. Like, right. Yeah, with Harley, for yeah. sure. All right. No. All right. Does anybody have any questions? We co you covered it all. I mean, for goodness sakes, you guys are. Oh, 
your your research. Where was the album like sold? Yeah, was the was the album available and sold at local record stores or what's the what's the story there? So it says $5 on the front, and that's... That's the extent of what we have? That's the extent of it, yeah. I don't know how many were pressed. There's not a lot. Frank Starr's phone number, his phone number is on the back, 208-682-3. So, yeah. We, probably I, toured I really around with know. it, you know. Yeah, exactly. It was probably while he was touring. He was also a preacher. And so, right. gospel singer, uh, like like most of those rockabilly guys, they they found God and they became preachers and gospel singers the end of their lives, and that's exactly what happened with him. So I imagine he's probably just slinging them out of the back of his van after shows, and right. just like we still do, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <He's> musicians. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, though. Yeah, any others? Yeah, asking about escape attempts because we we you identified him escaping from ISCI, mm-hmm. um, but did he, he ever try to escape from here? I did not find any documented evidence of him making it out. So most of the time, we only hear about it if they're successful. So like the but attempt usually with that attempts, we heard, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you'll hear some attempts. Yeah, so I I didn't. He find never any successfully other escaped here. Yeah, yeah, or else yeah. they probably would have had a record of it. Yeah, so. for sure. Yeah. In the back. trying to figure out how how far how he got from you know doing his plumbing out there at the uh-huh. new site to to going back home basically right he had made it yeah. all the way home back uh, east in Pocatello uh-huh. I couldn't find any evidence of what happened I looked and looked at these are hitcher days though yeah. right I mean when that's, that's far more exactly common exactly probably what happened was hitchhike yeah yeah yeah, that I really wanted to find that out. And there was all this speculation in all the newspaper articles, but none like specified. All it said was he stole a car from Twin Falls, so somehow he made he it made that He made it to far. Twin Falls. Yeah, and stole that rifle in Twin Falls and then next thing, you know, he's busted in the middle of the night. Yeah. And if he <laughs> if he had help, he wasn't talking. Oh. He wasn't going to chirp about it. No, so, no. being a, a lifer like that, so. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Ooh, the squawky recipe. Yeah, you got to spill it. I've had this. So it's not always that bad. It actually sometimes is, is okay. I'm take it's that as a okay. compliment. You yeah. should. You should. <laughs> so this is probably my sixth or seventh batch. And I've, I've been working with uh, mostly red delicious apples. They're my favorite apple. I'm like the last person in the world who still eats He's those. He's an old man with I, his red delicious. I am 90 years old with my red delicious. <laughs> but that and uh, sugar course lots of packets of sugar and then i use dave's killer bread because that seems appropriate and uh yeah and then i just mash it up and i don't let my wife know about this but i use the cuisinart to really get this one fine i really wanted to see how much alcohol content i could get Uh oh you're getting in trouble when you get home it is i mean it's stupid simple right that's the whole point is they could you know not a lot of work and they just get wasted off of this stuff oh for sure yeah and they would sit all along this back patio and they had these water bottles that they'd fill with squawky and they would just sit there for hours every day during their their free time and just just drink and get drunk now there is a wonderful story about a guard saying he could sniff it out right yes Yeah. yeah uh his name was was john williams big john is what they call him huge massive man i actually got to interview his son a couple weeks ago 
And any time that prisoners were acting strange, they'd be like, all right, send Big John in. And he, would, he could smell this stuff. And so I asked his son a couple of weeks ago, I was like, you know, why, why was he so good at that? Because he came from a whole line of moonshiners. <laughs> A whole line of hillbillies and he, moonshiners. He literally so he had a knew. nose for it. Yeah, he literally yeah. had a news, nose for it. And I was like blown away by that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> Hidden gems. <laughs> Sudden death. <laughs> what, are are the, the that, that, what are the risks of, of brewing your own squawky? Oh, that is a good question because it's not, not for uh, the faint of heart. All right. Having too good of a time. Uh, <laughs> really, really bad uh, hangovers, headaches, but the biggest risk is botulism. And there were prisoners like in Arizona four four or five years ago who caught botulism and almost died from brewing some squawky. So definitely don't recommend it. I recipe cards for everybody if you're interested. But there are big warnings on the back that you can die from this. But you know, we're all in like you can quarantine. Die from, right? so. <laughs> quarantine times. Your risk was coming out this <laughs> evening. <on>. So <laughs> All right. Anything else? Well, thanks. This was fun. Thanks for letting yeah, me be a part of uh, of this. And Sky will be back soon, everyone. Yes, Have no yeah, fear. Yeah. Um, and uh, we will definitely look forward to the next episode. Yeah, we love to end with uh, a little saying here. Uh, do your own time. Do your own number. And we'll see you all again soon. Thank you for coming. There it is. <laughs> If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. <laughs>